following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Well, it's nice to be with everybody this morning. Feel free to adjust your body, make sure you're comfortable. And we're going to continue our reflection for another couple of weeks. It's such a central teaching not just from the Buddha, but from the Buddha on down, people have understood the the liberating value of being honest about the truth of impermanence, like that chant we did in the morning, the five remembrances. Just in this most obvious, gross level, to keep in mind that we're born and then we die, or that what we get goes away that whatever um, we have in life, it isn't really ours in a real sense. It's something that we have for a while until things change. And uh, the Buddha's emphasis, the teachings, the emphasis on stabilizing this present moment awareness, you know, there's almost like a cult of being calm. And it's not about somehow distancing ourselves from life. This stable, calm presence is actually a means to be, to lean in, to be more and more intimate, more and more real with conditions. So basically, a lot of the initial work on the path is to cultivate the qualities of the heart that allow for this balanced, calm, patient, kind, and therefore penetrating presence so that we're not just living on the surface. When we're in that more scattered, distracted, superficial way, this what we might call an ordinary way of relating to experience, the real consequence of that more distracted way of being is that we keep doing what we've always done. We're kind of... Uh, destined to be stuck in our habits. Excuse me. It's one of the things all of us, we can notice whenever, whether in a formal sit or just in daily life, whenever we get even a little bit of that continuity of present moment awareness and there is some stability, some balance, some integrity of the heart, like, being with experience without a big agenda, we see our world begins to change. It's like we go from the reality we normally see and experience, the superficial reality, or what in Buddhism we would call delusion, right? Superficiality, um, distractedness leads to delusion, not seeing things as they are, to moving the movement in the direction of seeing more clearly Dhamma is the word we use, seeing things as they are. right? So we get that even with a little bit of continuity of present moment awareness. We sense how the moment shifts from delusion, being lost in thought, being caught up in our thoughts about things, to what we call being with things as they are. And it's a humbling and transforming and ultimately liberating movement. 
from distraction to non-distraction. And a lot of it has to do, as I've been saying, you know, in terms of the study of impermanence, it really, initially, it, we have to be inspired from this, this really wisdom of humility, like perhaps I'm not seeing things clearly yet. Because if we're totally convinced that our perceptions are deep and true, then we're not going to make any effort to check the quality of our perceptions. We're just going to presume how I'm seeing and therefore how I'm understanding. Well, that's in, in alignment with the way it is. And it never will occur to us. That's why I think maybe last week or maybe two weeks ago I mentioned what I consider a really powerful teaching from the Buddha, this teaching on the four distortions of perception. It just begins on the level of perception, but it affects how we think and eventually affects how we understand, like the, the deeper ways, the deeper patterns in the mind, how it constructs, how the mind constructs meaning. And so the four distortions of perception where we because of the superficiality and distractedness and habits, we see permanence in what is impermanent. We see satisfaction, like we see an experience as being satis satisfying in a way that it's actually not satisfying. We imagine experience is satisfactory in a way that it's not. We imagine experience as self, as I, me, or mine, in a way that it's not. We imagine, perceive experience as being beautiful when it's neither beautiful nor ugly. It's just what it is. So these ideas of permanence, of satisfaction, of self, of beauty, of being good, these are constructions that arise, very compelling constructions, like these deep habits of the way we narrate um, our life to ourselves. And they're very compelling, the stories we have about permanence, about self, about satisfaction, what's satisfying, about what's beautiful or good. And we miss, right, the deeper perception that things are actually not permanent, they're impermanent, they're changing that things are not actually satisfying in a lasting way. We've had so many moments of that ephemeral, temporary satisfaction, and then what happens? Like, we're momentarily sated. Oh yeah, this is what I wanted. I wanted to get warm, and now I'm warm. But that satisfaction of coming in from the outside where it's cold, and into a warm space, and Initially, there's that very real gratification of that, but that satisfaction is a very wispy, ephemeral thing. How long being in the warm room now before it's not anything? The satisfaction of being warm disappears, right? It doesn't mean we're all of a sudden cold in that warm room. It just means, in, in terms of my subjective experience, I'm no longer experiencing any satisfaction of being warm. Warm has, is the new normal, and so it's 
not part of my subjective experience. Now my mind's on to something else, like I want something to eat, I want something to drink, I want this, I want that. So we see that what we imagine will be satisfying, what we even experience as being satisfying, isn't ultimately satisfying. It's a very wispy, ephemeral thing. What we take to be self is actually an impersonal process. What we take to be beautiful is just that subjective arising. And from any, from any other angle, it might be perceived as being ugly or being just ordinary. But from this particular conditioning and this particular moment, the mind concludes it's beautiful. And we, in a way, we get spellbound by these constructions, these conclusions, the way perception and thinking and understanding get solidified because of these habits of misperceiving. So if the basic problem, as the Buddha saw it, is that we live in ways where we misperceive, we misunderstand, right? then the correction, the resolution is to develop a heart that is capable of seeing, feeling things as they are. So we're stabilizing, we're kind of creating a powerful um, perceptual, you know, this capacity of the sensitive heart to connect in undistorted ways. It takes some training. This is from um, an article Andy Olensky wrote. He's a, a wonderful scholar and teacher and for a long time he was the executive director and senior scholar at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. And um, this is a program that he created for the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies a while back. And he wrote this article, and it's titled, Making the Best of It. <laughs> And he's just describing what I was talking about. He says, or he writes, the brain freezes the world into, into discrete mind moments, each capturing a barely adequate morsel of information, then processes these one by one in a linear sequence. The result is a compiled virtual world of experience, more or less pattern on what's out there but mostly organized around the needs and limitations of the apparatus constructing it, right? The habits of our mind. The result is, uh, oh, I'm sorry. It is like the brain and its senses are hastily taking a series of snapshots, then stringing them together into a movie called the stream of consciousness. The Buddhists have a pretty good word to describe this system delusion. <laughs> it doesn't mean we're stupid, only that the mind and body are designed, so to speak, to distort reality in some very fundamental ways. For starters, each moment of consciousness creates an artificial node of stability out of a background that is thoroughly in flux. Right? And this is something we can check out. When we have a few moments of mindful presence, we'll directly, immediately sense this reality in flux. Because that's the underlying nature 
whether we're talking about my internal experience of thought and emotion or my external experience of seeing and hearing and touching. Experience is a movement. It's a river. But when we're in our more ordinary mode, where the mind is dominated not so much by immediate the immediacy of experiencing, but it's more dominated by the reality our thoughts about things give, then, like Andy says, consciousness creates an artificial node of stability out of a background that is thoroughly in flux. He continues writing, as the flip chart of mind moments rapidly unfolds, we weave all sorts of narratives about the way things are, filling in the blanks with various assumptions, projections, and aspirations. So again, I want to just pause here. Like, we could be having the thought now, you know, I'm listening to a talk Mark is giving. And that's, uh, you know, creates this little node of stability, as Andy describes it. Because that idea, I'm listening to an online talk by Mark Nunberg from Common Ground Meditation Center. That idea gives the semblance of stability, of permanence. Like that's permanently true. That's true in an unshakable way. That's how it appears to the mind that is knowing that thought, that projection. So we take these projections as real. We go on to seek gratification and security to the degree the constructed system cannot support. The ensuing dissatisfaction is is organized around the notion of myself, who is both the one who wishes things were different than they are and the one who suffers when they are not. We are hardwired, in other words, to misconstrue the nature of reality by obscuring the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness of it all. Right, so we've constructed a sense of a me, and this is the great tragedy. We're in an ongoing way, the mind is constructing a sense of a me, an I, me, or mine, that has this appearance of being solid, and then that idea of the solid, permanent me is therefore threatened by the way it is, that things are changing and therefore unsatisfactory, impersonal. So we've this is the existential dis-ease. We're living under the influence of a projection that is threatened by Reality. Reality actually isn't threatening. Reality is just what it is. It's what it always has been, always will be. Right? It's this changing natural process, this dance of so many causes and conditions. This is true of consciousness. It's true of our internal, external experience. It's just a lot of things coming together and everything uh, conditioning the next moment, right? It's it's this movement of causes and conditions, and through who knows the evolutionary process, the mind has learned to trust uh, 
and therefore get confused by its own projections, its own constructions. Now, this may seem like a bunch of philosophy, but we see it acting out in real life. Like those of you who have raised children, you know, like a teenager, when your child becomes a teenager, and you see that they're just in a different world. You're, you know, very much concerned about their safety, and you're giving them instructions, or you're drawing the line in the sand, no, you can't do this, because you understand the world one way, and you see the danger, and you say no. And then they're constructing a completely different reality. They see you as being hypersensitive or deluded and you're, you know, in that particular way that they see you being deluded and overprotecting parent or whatever it is. You don't understand the world. Um, and both people, the, the teenager, for example, and the parent, they're in their own constructed realities. We see that in terms of politics. And it's relatively easy for us to get some sense of how another person is trapped in their projection. But it's not so easy for us to realize that we're also trapped in our projections. And so in this sense, the Buddha has realized and has taught and then people down through the centuries, generation after generation, have been teaching, have been sharing their own experience that sobering up, like initially realizing the tension, the stress that's always there when our mind is dependent, taking the projections to be more than what they are. Right? There's always tension in the mind because it's limited. The heart, the mind, the nature of the heart and mind is then limited in a limited in a sense of it's oppressed by any idea, any projection, any constructed meaning that it's clinging to. It becomes limited by what it's taking to be more than what it is. And the neurotic thing is that how much we then defend the projection, we get used to that note of stability, even though it's not trustworthy, it's deeply insecure, right? But it's something that the mind tries to maintain or trust or hold to. And then it, it sort of, in being in allegiance with the constructed meaning that things are permanent, that I'm real, that things are satisfying in a way that they're not, there is good and bad in a way that, they do, that doesn't really exist in the deeper sense, then we are in defense against, it's almost like we're threatened by clarity, by um, living in a way, in a present moment way, in a, with the stability of present moment awareness, because it will, in fact, challenge the constructed notions that the mind is in the habit of clinging to. So it's quite a predicament that we gotten ourselves into. And I really, I find it useful to, in very ordinary ways, see this operating in ourselves in particular, but initially it's easier to see how it operates in other people, like our partners, like our children, like people with different opinions than we have. And with that calm, 
stable awareness, we can really see, oh yeah, they're in a bubble. And then we want to make the translation, oh, perhaps this mind is also mostly in bubbles, clinging to constructions. Right? We can even do that with the ideas of Buddhism, where we're not experiencing the impersonal nature. The mind is clinging to the idea that it's all impersonal and holding to that idea as a kind of ground. That, okay, knowing the truth of things gives me some stability, a node of stability. But it's just a projection. Because impermanence isn't an idea, the impersonal nature isn't an idea, it's an experience that we're opening to, that changes us. And the Buddha really points us to our mind in particular. There's this really interesting sutta I'll read. Um, here it's, the title is translated as the monkey mind. You probably have heard that. Um, and it's not just monkeys, but a lot of us animals, you know, humans included, we exhibit a kind of restlessness. I see that in myself. You know, when people are around, I try to, you know, hold it together. But I notice when I'm alone, sometimes I'll be just sort of flitting about, do this, do a little of that, come back here, check the refrigerator, check the news, do this, that sort of restless, unsettled energy. So here's the sutta, the discourse from the Buddha. The uninformed person might become disenchanted with, disengaged from, and become free of this body made up of the four great elements. Why is that? Because the piling up and wearing down, the taking up and laying aside of this body is evident. Right? And that's really true. Like we get that the body's born, it lives for a while, and it dies. It's obvious that it's not this vehicle, the body, is not dependable. Yet that which is called the mind, or thought, or consciousness, that one would not become disenchanted with, would not become disengaged from, would not become free of, why is that? Why are we still so attached to our thinking? Because for a very long time one has been attached to, identified with, and grasping onto thinking. This is mine, this is who I am, this is myself. It would be better for an uninformed person, right, someone who's not yet well-practiced, to approach this body as self rather than the mind, wherever you point to for the mind. Why is that? Because this body endures for a year, two, two years, even up to a hundred years or more, while that which is called mind or thought or consciousness arises in one way and ceases in another day and night. Just as a monkey making its way through the forest or the jungles grasps a branch a branch, and releasing it, he or she grasps another. So also that which is called mind or thought or consciousness arises in one way, ceases in another day and night. When we have enough stability of present moment awareness, one of the real insights, one of the early insights that students report, right, is this, so they have some real continuity of present moment awareness, 
and they they report oh my thinking it was just like spewing on and on this thought that thought and sometimes the thoughts aren't even fully formed it's almost like fragments of mental images fragments of thoughts almost like a spewing waterfall flowing on and on and on and then there's the knowing oh yeah this and now this and now this and now this just as if you were watching a waterfall but the attention wasn't fixating on any droplet but was relaxed and really noticing the flow the movement and on the ongoing spewing of thinking right and when we're aware with that kind of stability we really see that the mark that we imagine is here having an experience it's actually one mark after another because every moment of perception every moment of thinking every moment of this every moment of that there is sort of a freeze and it's its own you know we call it in in the tradition on mind moment but it's interesting to see now this mind moment absolutely conditions the next mind moment so there's a relationship between this moment of mind and the next moment of mind and the next but we can also in a very honest subtle way see that this moment of mind is not this next moment of mind one moment of mind is there has a birth and a death and then another moment of mind has a birth and a death and it really begins to erode how we what we take ourselves to be because the thinking mind imputes continuity to self but that imputation like that idea that it's me it's me it's still me it's was me back then it's me now it's probably going to be me down the road that's just because one moment is conditioning next there's relationship between one moment and the next moment and the next moment right but doesn't mean it's the same moment so this is part of stabilizing present moment awareness is to really begin to see this here's another sutta uh, involving the buddhist nuns the early nuns at the time of the buddha sisters suppose an oil lamp is burning its oil is impermanent and subject to change its wick is impermanent and subject to change its flame is impermanent and subject to change and its radiance is impermanent and subject to change now would anyone be speaking rightly who spoke thus while this oil lamp is burning its oil wick and flame are impermanent and subject to change but its radiance that's permanent everlasting eternal not subject to change no and so the sisters answer no why is that because while the oil lamp is burning its oil wick and flame are impermanent and subject to change so its radiance must also be impermanent and subject to change good good so it is with any wise disciple of these teachings who sees this as it actually is with proper wisdom so too sisters would anyone be speaking rightly who spoke thus these six sense bases are impermanent 
and subject to change. But the pleasant, painful, and neutral feeling that one experiences in dependence on seeing something with the eye or hearing something with the ear, so the five senses plus thinking as the sixth sense, right? So if the senses, if my sight, if sound, if touch is a changing process, then whatever feeling arises, a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling, that is also impermanent. It arises, as the Buddha says here, it arises in dependence upon its corresponding condition. And with the cessation of that condition, the feeling also ceases. So we don't take our mental projections as something that's permanent. And we don't take the pleasantness of an experience or the unpleasantness of an experience also to be permanent. And this is, you know, the Buddhist pointing this out about feeling calm because we often get confused at this point. When I'm experiencing a lot of physical discomfort, in a superficial way, the thinking mind constructs a sense of a me who is not okay because there's some sense that the unpleasantness that I'm experiencing is permanent enough to make it not okay. And so we can just, just in a very simple way, when like to integrate the reality of impermanence. So when we're having a pleasant experience, really nice experience, that to just bring to mind, yeah, it's really nice right now. And there's a gratification because it's really nice right now. And it won't last. Oh, okay. So that we're not building a story about ourselves based on things that are impermanent, but interpreting them as somebody is permanently, in some lasting or real sense, screwed because it's unpleasant, or you know, going to be fine, going to be satisfied because it's pleasant. So what the Buddha is saying with these last two discourses is that the, through the thinking process we're constructing stories that have the appearance, the projection of being permanent, but they're totally being built on things that are impermanent and ephemeral. And yet, from the point of view of self, the self-story, it evokes a reaction as if it's permanent. You know, we see this all the time where we're freaking out about something that's a temporary phenomenon and it will pass. And especially in the bigger picture where we, you know, the bigger picture of birth and death that we don't completely understand. We have this, uh, this is what, you know, people find some real value in being in nature and just that renewing truth of nature. There's winter, everything's dead, spring comes back, birth and death. But this, because we're clinging to something that was never worthy of clinging to, this physical existence, for example, then death becomes this boogeyman in our life. It's like, oh, it doesn't belong. It's an existential threat to the idea of my permanence. But the Buddha is asking us, well, really look at that idea of permanence. What is it built on? It's just 
a, a construction, right? It's a construction built on something that didn't doesn't really lead to any sort of permanent idea. But it's through our, you know, really our lack of integrity, how we're relating to our experience in a superficial way, that we constantly construct something that then is threatened by ordered the ordinary truth of things coming and going. So one of the things we can do for homework this week is just observe our own thoughts and our own mood, our own attitude, and just track it even through one hour or even one half day and really get the sense, okay, Mark was like this, Mark was like that, and we get a, a more clear sense of the birth and deaths moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, how many different moods, how many different attitudes, how many different points of view. The thing that really is consistent is the grasping, like personalizing. But the story of who I am or what I am, that's always in flux, but we miss it because it has the same flavor, which is the flavor of grasping, so we presume, you know, in the superficial, not clear way, that it's me. And all the Buddha is doing is really asking us to pay attention. He described, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, the aggregates of the body and mind, right, as a lump of foam, the body. It looks substantial, but not really. And our feeling as a bubble, perception as a mirage, the mental constructions as a tree without any heartwood, like a banana tree where you peel away the outside of a banana tree and there's no heartwood in the middle of it, and consciousness as an illusion. And he says, the Buddha says, what essence practitioners could there be in a lump of foam, in a bubble, in a mirage, in a banana trunk, in an illusion? In another place in the tradition, it, he describes, or it's described, phenomena as dewdrop at sunrise, bubble on water, a line drawn on water, a lightning flash, a dream, and a whirling firebrand. You know, if you had a, a torch and you spun it around and around, somebody at some distance would see a circle of fire but there's not a circle of fire. There's just an appearance that the circle of fire is there because the person is spinning the torch at a sufficient speed. And there's the ancient story of the snake and the rope, where somebody walking when the light was maybe at dusk and you couldn't see very well, and there's a rope on the path, and the person thinks, snake, and runs away, and tells everybody about the snake on the path, and it gets to be the habit of the mind to see that snake, to see the rope as a snake. And then people can be very convinced. They can argue for hours. No, no, it is a snake. I tell you, I saw the snake. And we can be convinced that the woods are filled with snakes, even though it's just a rope. And this is how delusion operates, where we, the mind, orients around its past constructions because they're familiar 
more than that stable, clear, curious, intimate connection with the way it is. We just haven't valued that enough because we presume the conclusions the mind has drawn as we just conclude they're accurate and not worthy of being checked out. Uh, I asked Gabe Keller Flores, our office manager, to link to an article by a, a Thai Buddhist monk, uh, Kantipalo is this person's name, and the article is A Walk in the Woods. And he's just talking about impermanence in a very ordinary way. I'd just like to end with this short passage. And you can look for that link on the blog or in the weekly email if you want to read it. It's only maybe three or four pages. In that article he writes, All, compound, all compounds break down. All made things fall into pieces. All conditioned things pass away with the passing away of those conditions. Everything and everybody, that includes you and me, deteriorates, ages, decays, breaks up and passes away. And we, living in the forest of desires, are entirely composed of the impermanent. Yet our desire impels us to not see this. Through impermanence, though impermanence stares us in the face from every single thing around, and it confronts us when we look within, mind and body arising and passing away. So don't turn on the TV, go to the pictures, read a book, see some food or a hundred other distractions just to avoid seeing this. This is the one thing really worth seeing for one who who fully, for one who fully sees it in themselves, is free. And this is really for us to check out. Is it in fact liberating to come into, little by little, to come more and more into alignment with the way things are, the changing nature, the ephemeral nature? Can we learn to relax into the way it is and feel the flux, the flow of thought, the flow of feeling, the flow of perception. Even while doing what needs to be done in the world, it isn't about abandoning duties and responsibilities. It's really about participating with our lives, in our lives, with our duties and responsibilities from a, a place of deeper understanding, how alive everything is with change. So we become more skillful in what we say, what we do, how we think. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.